Well, good morning, everyone. So we're going to be continuing uh, our series in Galatians and not finishing it uh, this morning. We're slowing down quite a bit for some of the more um, meteor applications in the book and just trying to really think through what these applications look like, what they mean. And so we'll be getting into just verses 6 through 10 this morning in just a moment. But just a couple of things to mention about Galatians and about the section that will be in here in just a moment. Um, I don't want to spend too much time reintroducing the book, and so one thing I just want to bring up by way of introduction with Galatians overall is this theme of embracing the freedom of the gospel. Galatians, more than any other New Testament letter, really emphasizes the importance of the freedom we have in Christ and what that freedom means and what we're to do with that freedom. Um, It's really helped me in going through Galatians to understand better that when Paul is talking about the freedom we have in the gospel, it is less a judicial freedom and more a relational freedom. What I mean by that is, I think when we hear the word freedom, we think of like American freedom. You know, we have freedom by law to, you know, have a lot of liberties and a lot of such things um, to be free from oppression, things like that. Whereas I think what Paul is talking about with the freedom of the gospel, rather, is not so much a judicial freedom as much as as it is relational. So remember, the question I've been asking again and again, is there freedom in marriage? Is there freedom in marriage? And it really depends. Um, Being that close to someone comes with a lot more responsibilities, a lot more burdens that are needed to bear, a lot more responsibilities we have biblically to our spouse, And yet, is there freedom in marriage? If you love a person and you want as much unity as you can have with the person, there is freedom in marriage. And again, what happens when that freedom begins to seem like enslavement? What happens to that relationship? What happens to that marriage, right? So God has given us the freedom to be fully united with him, to be with him just as he is, to know him as he is, And that freedom does carry with it a sense of responsibility. But what God's grace does is it urges us and encourages us to love that responsibility just like a husband or a wife ought to love the responsibilities they have to their spouse and not count those things to be burdensome. And we're going to be focusing on goodness in the section we're going to be looking at, verses 6 through 10. Notice in verse 6, you'll see that idea of doing good emphasized between the one who's taught the word and the one who teaches to share all good things. And then a part of what it seems like is the sowing to the flesh, the sowing to the spirit. That sowing to the spirit is manifest in verse 9 and 10 in doing good. And we're encouraged to do good not only to all people, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, just again, by way of introduction still, look back at chapter 5, verse 22. You'll notice in the qualities that are involved in the fruit of the Spirit, one of those qualities is goodness. What is that? If I asked you, could you define goodness, maybe explain what that is, or distinguish goodness from, let's say, love, or faithfulness, or patience, or kindness? Like, how does goodness distinguish itself among those things? What is goodness? So I do, I do want to think about that for a moment. I think it will be very helpful when we're thinking about this idea of doing good. I want you to think, first of all, about Genesis chapter 1. So throughout the days of creation, 
every time that God had created something, when he saw it, he saw that it was good. And on day seven, when he had looked at everything that he had made, behold, it was very good. Fundamentally, goodness is when things are as God intended them to be. When things are as God intended them to be. Now, think about Jesus. That really encapsulates his entire ministry. Because Jesus was as God intended him to be. But he also was trying to make things as God intended them to be. Both people and things around him. This, this may not make sense for a moment, but I think Jesus driving out the money changers in the temple is actually a very clear illustration of goodness and an expression, application of goodness. Because think about it. What was the temple supposed to be? Jesus said the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. That's what God intended. And when he drove out the money changers, what did he, said, what did he say they had made it to be? a den of thieves. And so Jesus driving them out was bringing the temple back to what God intended for it to be. Therefore, Jesus driving out the money changers as seemingly abrasive as that was, it was an act of goodness because Jesus was bringing things back to what they were intended to be. This is the purpose of everything difficult Jesus said. Think about his rebuke of Peter. When Jesus said he was going to be crucified, betrayed by the elders and scribes and chief priests, and then raised again on the third day, Peter took him aside, said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for your mind is not set on God's interest, but man's. He was bringing Peter's thought process back to what God intended for it to be. Again, think about that with Galatians. Paul has said some difficult things in Galatians, but were the Galatians using their freedom in Christ as God intended for it to be? Were they utilizing their freedom that they've had in the gospel? Were they utilizing that the way God intended? No. And so Paul has rebuked them and exhorted them and corrected that because in goodness, Paul is bringing that back as God intended for it to be. And their faith, their relationship to the gospel, they were now believing in a perverted gospel, a twisted gospel, and again, Paul corrects this to bring things back to the way that God intended them to be. Now, how this relates to doing good. When Jesus talked about doing good, did he just focus on the external application of what was good? Think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Giving to the poor. In Jesus' way of teaching about giving to the poor, is that act of itself inherently good? No. Because Jesus said that the, there are the Pharisees and the hypocrites who parade themselves and sound the trumpet, and because they want to be noticed by men, that thing that you would think is good has actually been made into something corruptible and evil and selfish, right? So to do good is to do as God intends, as he intended for it to be done. To do as God intends but to do it for the reasons that he intends for it to be done. Think about that with assembling. Assembling, it's, it's encouraging that all of you are here, right? But can someone assemble with a local church and it not be for the reason God intends? You know, a person might assemble because I just don't want to feel guilty, or that's just kind of what I do, and that's, I guess, an important thing I do every Sunday, so therefore I go to church. Someone might go because they 
don't want to have people on their back and they want to get people off their back and I don't want you to be suspicious or think that something's wrong with me or wrong with my faith, so I'll show up. A person can think, well, I just got to take the Lord's Supper. You know, I've got to take the Lord's Supper, so I've got to go to church to take the Lord's Supper. Now, it's right to take the Lord's Supper. We need to take the Lord's Supper as we have opportunity, right? But again, Hebrews chapter 10, in that verse that talks about not forsaking the assembly, it actually gives you the reason for assembling to encourage one another and in considering one another to stir up love and good works. So can someone attend with a local church and do that thing that should be good but do it for the wrong reasons and it can become something corruptible, something selfish, something bad? We're to assemble together for the purpose of building these relationships, building our relationship with God, edification. So we're going to be referencing this as we go through this with sharing what is good, doing what is good, we're not just talking about doing a thing externally, but rather doing what God intends for us to do for the reasons why he intends for those things to also be done. Let's start with verse 6, and I'll go ahead and read verses 6 through 10 again here. 6 through 10. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us, not grow we- Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the sharing what is good. There's some, obviously, some awkward aspects to this to bring up, but I, I think with the relationship Paul is talking about between the person taught the word of God and the one teaching to share all good things, share all good things. There's really two ways to do this. There's physically and spiritually. Think physically, especially when we note places like first Corinthians nine, where Paul talks about how those who give their life to the preaching of the gospel, God intends that they also have the ability to live by their teaching of the gospel This would involve using resources to support the life of a teacher, which this is what the congregation does here with with me. The congregation sets aside um, a portion of what's collected on Sundays to support my lifestyle, preaching the gospel in the community, teaching here. And that is a biblical application of this. Um, There is a, a value that cannot be measured to hearing the word of God. And I do see in the New Testament that God has this method um, set aside as a way of showing a value for that teaching. But I think in the context of Galatians, I think that this is more a spiritually oriented instruction. I do think that the financial or physical resource aspect of this is an application, but I think when we consider Paul's relationship to the Galatians, that this, I think, has more layers to it. And so I think this would be cultivating a bond on the basis of hearing and applying God's word. And I think when we consider Paul's relationship with the Galatians again, it becomes apparent that there's a problem here that makes this instruction very relevant. Paul was responsible for originally teaching the Galatians. But remember in chapter 4, 14, and 15, how their relation has has changed, rather 14 through 16, that Paul, when he first came to them, he had some kind of bodily illness. They didn't despise that, but they received him 
as they would see, receive Christ himself. Verse 15, he says, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So the way that the Galatians were relating to Paul, were they continuing to share all good things with Paul? And I don't mean their physical resources. They were cutting their relationship with Paul completely off. How is that impacting Paul? He mentions in verse 20, I could wish to be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. And if you look at the end of chapter 6, verse 17, I think this is meant to be something, particularly for the Galatians, that would be both convicting and also extremely humiliating. He ends the letter in verse 17 saying, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. I think what the Galatians had been doing without really comprehending the effect they were having on Paul is they were causing a great deal of turmoil on Paul, who is already incredibly beset with physical problems because of the persecutions he endures, emotional problems because of all of the Christians that he is trying to serve and is concerned about, and the Galatians and the way that they're thinking about Paul and treating Paul just adds to this great burden. And I want you to think about Jesus and his ministry. Um, In Luke chapter 11, while Jesus is teaching, there's a woman in the crowd who cries out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And it sounds great. Like, wow, what what a compliment, you know? And it's like, amen, sister. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is amazing and everything he's doing is amazing. But Jesus turns to her and says, on the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. So think about Jesus. Was he just wanting people to just physically support him and give him money or give him food and just establish some kind of nice social bond and move on to the next town? Or is that how the Apostle Paul was? Was he just wanting to establish nice social bonds with Christians and churches and, you know, they can kind of treat God any which way as long as they're giving him money. You know, they're sharing all good things well enough. What Jesus was really after was not people's money or their resources. He was wanting people to hear God's word and do it and wanting to share in the goodness of spiritual development. And I think that was the basis of what Paul is getting to in Galatians chapter 6. To illustrate this maybe just a little bit further, a good friend of mine recently moved from one state to another and from working with a church And it's a church where he was being fully financially supported. The church had elders and deacons, has elders and deacons. He had been there for a number of years. But he was getting burnt out, very discouraged. And he reflected to me recently that he really did need to leave because he was getting heavily burnt out and very discouraged. And he realizes more now being away just how discouraged he was. How is it? that an evangelist working with a congregation with elders and deacons, fully financially supported, gets burnt out and discouraged. I'll tell you this. He was very discouraged because in his time there, he wasn't able to form any significant spiritual bonds with anybody. Nobody wanted to study with him outside of assemblies. Nobody wanted really to talk about the sermons in any meaningful way. He couldn't 
just get past a brick wall where everything was mainly just social. And it's not as if they're bad Christians necessarily, but again, it's just, were they sharing all good things with him? Even though they were financially supporting him and he had a, a community to work with him. Again, he was getting very burnt out and very discouraged, I would argue, because they were not sharing the kind of good things that Paul is attending here with the Galatians. And I think if the Galatians don't get their faith in check, they are not going to be able to support anybody who can properly teach and dwell among them because, like my good friend, you'll just end up getting burnt out and discouraged because an evangelist, it's okay for us to have social bonds, right? It's okay. But what an evangelist ultimately wants with people, especially Christians, is to have relationships that are based in prayer, applying the word of God, valuing the word of God, reading God's word together, not just at assemblies, finding ways to bring it up in conversation, finding ways to ask questions about it. Those are very challenging things to figure out how to do. And I really struggle with those things myself a lot. Um, But again, I really want to advocate that I think more than financial support, the spiritual aspect of this more than anything, I think is what Paul is really getting to. So cultivating what is good. Um, Verse 7 and 8. He calls for them again to not be deceived. Notice in verse 3, he also emphasizes that. So twice he's emphasized, do not be deceived. I get the impression in Galatians that these are Christians who are really struggling with being deceived, right? Not only were they believing a false gospel, but at this point in the letter, it's like that bigger problem, maybe that more noticeable problem, is an evidence of something much more personal and much more intimate. We've also noticed this in the book of Numbers. If you remember in Numbers, oftentimes after bigger problems, like when they complain about food, the rebellion of Korah, God will immediately afterwards start talking about like sacrifices and stuff with the priests. And it's like, okay, this is kind of random. But no, he's, he's advocating that these bigger problems are because they are not personally doing the things that God tells them to do that cultivate humility and holiness on a more personal level, self-awareness, self-evaluation, proper, godly self-evaluation. That's exactly what Paul is doing at the end of the letter. If we are properly evaluating ourselves, it protects us from bigger problems that become inevitable when we are not aware or honest enough to deal with things that are arising within our own hearts. So verse 7, It's critical we're not self-deceived because whatever we reap or whatever we sow, rather, we will reap. Why would this be something that we are tempted to be deceived on? So it's easy to think I can sow wild oats fully expecting crop failure, right? That I can invest in the world and worldly desire and also at the same time think that I can be a strong, mature Christian or, you know, be growing in my faith and growing in spiritual relationships with brethren. And that's just, that's not real. That's, that's just not how things work, right? And then I, I asked a brother in Christ who works in agriculture um, if he's aware of like a crop and a weed that look identical to each other. And he mentioned Darnell. Scott, do you know what Darnell is? So Scott knows what Darnell is. It's, it's a... It's a wheat weed that looks exactly like weed until I think it's like nearly fully developed. So you've really got to keep your eye out for it. 
Um, but Darnell is, is, is so well known that it seems like Jesus was using that particular weed when he talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And it seems like it's widely believed that the tares are that Darnell weed that becomes a lot more evident as it grows. Um, so again, if we, if we sow wheat with Darnell, it's going to choke out the good crop. If we sow weeds among what should be bearing fruit, it's only going to make it harder for that soil to have enough room for resources to bear proper results. And so if we want spiritual maturity, we're going to have to invest ourselves in sowing to the Spirit. And now think about this further again with this agricultural analogy. What's the rewarding part between sowing and reaping? What's the rewarding part? Like when are you getting the good part of the deal? It's when you're reaping. But what takes longer? What's harder work, right? Where does that come from, that reaping aspect? So I think that helps us understand sowing to the Spirit is not exhilarating. You sow, you plant, you water, you take care of your crop, you wake up early, you do everything you have to do to take care of your crop because you know it is the only way you are going to reap the crop that you're anticipating. And it's the same spiritually. We can't think that we can reap spiritual maturity or spiritual wellness, even fundamentally, if we are not doing the work of sowing to the Spirit in more intimate and personal ways. And I think as simple as it can be, sowing to the flesh is simply not sowing to the Spirit. Everything about sowing to the Spirit is done purposely and deliberately. And so I think it's fair to say that if I'm not being purposeful in sowing to the Spirit, I am sowing to the flesh. Because there's only two options. I'm either sowing to the Spirit or I'm sowing to the flesh. And so if I'm not sowing to the Spirit, if I'm not being deliberate about that, then inevitably I am sowing to the flesh and shouldn't be surprised if sin is always enslaving me, if I'm always falling into sin, if, if I have explosive anger that I just can't seem to get under control, if, if I just seem stagnant in my relationship with God, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It's because we're sowing to the flesh. But if you look back at chapter 5, 16 and 17, and also verse 24, he brings up again and again the desires of the flesh. If we want to serve God in a spiritually meaningful way, we've got to learn to change our desires and stop desiring things that God is trying to turn us away from. And stop wanting things that destroy our faith and destroy our relationship with God. And we've got to learn to value things differently and see things differently and and even discipline ourselves to cut away things and rip up the weeds of things that make it so much more difficult for us to value what God values, to seek what God seeks and to do what God does. And to sow to the Spirit, think a way to maybe summarize that, especially when you think about chapter 2, verse 20. Again, one of the more well-known verses in Galatians, when Paul says, um, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So to, to, to sow to the Spirit is to cultivate the character of Jesus within myself and to cultivate an authentic love for him. This is one of the most important things that we can do in our lives is cultivating the character of Jesus within myself and cultivating a genuine and authentic love for Jesus. 
And can you do that every day, wherever you are? Can you develop the character of Jesus at your workplace, at your school, when you're interacting with your kids, when you're interacting with your spouse, when you're just having your own private time, when you're in prayer? We can carry the character of Jesus with us everywhere we go. We can use every opportunity to grow in the character of Jesus. And everything we do can cause us to love Jesus more, to reflect on him, to dwell on him, right? And again, that's, that's what it means to live by the Spirit. In Galatians, it doesn't just talk about doing things by the Spirit, but it's something that's continuous. If you look at 525, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So again, there's something more constant to this. And again, as, as simple as it is, I think in, in preaching, this is like the most fundamental application that could just be in every sermon, right? But I just really think that this is important and relates to the letter. It means taking in God's word as deeply as possible. It means protecting it in our hearts, making room for it, and letting it change me and, and work within me. Think about it. What parable did Jesus use where he also talked about reaping and sowing and used agriculture to talk about the kingdom? It was about the word of God falling into the soil of our hearts and the soil that it could stay in and bear fruit in was an honest and good heart who held it fast. And in the reading that Brandon brought up in the Lord's Supper, it goes on where Jesus says, um, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now, did you get the impression that what Jesus was teaching in that context, as Brandon read that, that Jesus was saying things that were easy to listen to or were just immediately compelling and immediately rewarding? By the time he was done, it seems as if the entire crowd, which would have been thousands the entire crowd left because they thought this was too difficult to listen to. Reading God's word, investing in it, meditating on it, talking about it, is not natural. It just isn't. It just doesn't feel like other things. Reading God's word isn't like picking up a great work of fiction or a great biography. It's not even like reading a commentary about the Bible where people maybe in a daily devotional can word things in just a really compelling way and it's a lot more exciting and easy to hear. God's word is just, it's very different. And I think, again, we just have to discipline ourselves to know that there is a value and a power to God's word hidden behind what can feel oftentimes like unrewarding drudgery. Because oftentimes you read God's word and it's like, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. I don't feel some grand life-changing point coming out of this, and that's fine. Think about the Galatians, how he starts the letter. They were hearing things and believing things that they should not have been giving their attention to because they had not been holding the original message they heard fast within themselves. And because they weren't continuing to hear and hold it fast and let it bear fruit, there was monumental, catastrophic failure in their faith. Where Paul brings up that they had been severed from Christ because of what they were hearing. Again, I know it's a simple application, but 
hearing God's word, absorbing it, and making that a discipline, the value of that, I think, cannot be overstated. One last way of illustrating this. What was Jesus doing for the first 29 years of his life? Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, when his parents went to Jerusalem, they left without him, didn't realize he was not with them. And when they finally found him in Jerusalem, do you remember what he was doing and where he was? He was in the temple, both listening to the teachers and asking them questions. And they were amazed at his answers. And one of my favorite things about Luke, that word amazed, that's used with how they responded. In the Gospels, that word is only used when people see a miracle. They reacted to Jesus' understanding of God's word as if they had seen a miracle. What was Jesus doing for the first 29 years of his life? Sowing to the Spirit. When was the payoff? Can you imagine how difficult it was, Jesus knowing the work he was to accomplish, waiting as he confronted the Pharisees, as he saw the money changers in the temple, and it's not time yet. Now's the time for sowing. Reaping comes later. Again, Jesus was sowing to the Spirit for 29 years. And a lot of that, I get the impression, absorbing God's word, deeply considering it. What is the result of that? We see that in Jesus. 9 and 10. Endurance in doing good. We'll read this again. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So verse 9. I've, I've known farmers. I used to travel to southern Minnesota, and there was a small group of Christians there. And one of those Christians was a farmer. And he was older, was not... He was not in good physical shape, and it was just killing him. You know, just the farming, the work it took, the hours it took. And, you know, sometimes he would sow and sow and sow. He would take care of things, but for reasons out of his control, wouldn't work out. He wouldn't get his crop, and it was all a waste. But look at verse 9. Will it ever be a waste, sowing to the Spirit? Notice the guarantee we will reap. So imagine farmers wait and wait and wait without any absolute guarantee that it's actually going to turn out as a crop. You know, the weather could change. You know, things could happen to the soil. So many things could happen out of your control where you've done all this work and for nothing. And what Paul is saying is there is an absolute guarantee that if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap in due time if we don't grow weary. So as we live by the Spirit, we are equipped to have endurance as we dedicate ourselves to doing good. And I want to think about what he says about growing weary and the danger of growing weary. Before we think about this, I just want to ask a question. What if God deliberately designed his will to wear us out unless we're sowing to the Spirit? And if God designed his will to wear us out and potentially discourage us to the point where we lose heart, if we're sowing to the Spirit, where does that push us? It pushes us to greater dependence on the Lord, recognizing my weakness, my need for his grace, being more thankful when I see his work and his deliverance in my life. It helps me understand just in a great way my great need for God so that I can help others understand their great need for God. 
It helps me become familiar with my need for God to comfort me when all else fails so that I, in turn, can then comfort others also. And God throughout the Bible is more than anything a God of deliverance. If I walk by the Spirit, instead of growing weary, I will become more familiar with God's deliverance, his comfort, his power, his love. It pushes us to become more dependent on the love of God. So why do we grow weary? I'll argue that in the text here, it's when our focus, instead of it being on the eternal, is on the immediate. And instead of focusing ourselves on Christ and on his word and on his promises, we're focusing on ourselves. When instead of focusing on giving to others and encouraging others, I'm focused more on what I need and receiving rather than giving. And I want you to consider Paul's example. We'll, we'll turn here to 2 Corinthians But I think as Paul is writing to the Galatians, Paul himself is a very encouraging example of the things that we're studying. Look at a couple passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul will directly reference throughout this chapter what keeps him going. Because Paul will mention in this chapter that he is so afflicted and so burdened that if not for the Lord, he would lose heart. But look at chapter 4 verse 1. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. So because of mercy, because of God's forgiveness, because of God's comfort, because of God's grace, Paul does not lose heart because he's focusing on God's work rather than himself. Look further in chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What was Paul focused on? And how did that focus help him find encouragement when he had so much reason to be discouraged, to lose himself in all of the things that were happening around him that could cause him to become overwhelmed with just weariness and heartache? It was because Paul was not focused on the present. He was focused on the eternal. Paul wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on the Lord and on others. And so if we're struggling, struggling with weariness and losing heart, what we really need to do is evaluate our focus. And we really need to have an honest sense of self-reflection. Is the problem that I'm just focusing too much on myself and not on the Lord? Am I focusing too much on receiving instead of giving as Jesus did? Am I focusing more on the immediate and on myself rather than on Christ and the eternal? And I think, getting back to Galatians chapter 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. I think this is directly connected with this idea of sowing to the Spirit. That living by the Spirit inevitably results in becoming more sensitive to people's spiritual needs and physical needs. Now, notice as well, in verse 10, this is as we have opportunity. You know, so none of this is God's not asking for more time than you have, more energy than you have. You know, he's not asking you to never sleep ever again because you can never do enough for him. It's not the idea. 
It's just the idea that if we sow to the Spirit, as we have opportunity, we will inevitably become more sensitive to both the spiritual and physical needs of those around us. Again, think about Jesus' ministry. Do you see in Jesus' ministry that he was very sensitive to both the spiritual and physical needs of people around him? And that it wasn't just spiritual needs that concerned Jesus. He would heal people, and oftentimes when he healed people, they would just get up and walk away. You remember in Luke 17, there were 10 lepers who came to Jesus. He healed all 10. They left, and only one returned, being the Samaritan. So Jesus, he just had consideration for the physical needs of others and and did what he could as people came to him and as he had opportunity. And he gave in the way that God intended, you know, not expecting anything in return. But it also makes us sensitive to the spiritual needs of those around us. I think one of the most important good things we can do is what Paul had done for the Galatians. Accurately teaching God's word to those around us, even if it makes us uncomfortable and makes others uncomfortable. Accurately teaching God's word is the most important thing we can do for those around us, even if it makes us uncomfortable and makes others uncomfortable. And again, this is very challenging, but I think this is something we see with Paul and the Galatians, that what he was doing for them, he was accurately teaching them the word of God, even if it made him and them uncomfortable. And we are called to do that for others as well. But obviously beyond this, I think there's a lot of room for where are you and where am I? What is your environment? What are the opportunities you have? And if we're sowing to the Spirit, we'll begin to recognize those opportunities much more seriously. And through prayer, it should compel us to want to seek God's help to utilize those opportunities more effectively. And maybe some of us need to create more opportunity, right? Um, And go out of our comfort zone a bit more um, to meet those needs. And as well, as we've mentioned in verse 10, especially those of the household of faith. You know, so we're called to extend this to all people, but what Galatians emphasizes again and again, the greatest expression of faith is love among brethren and practicing love among brethren. So finally, if we're not cultivating good works, we need to honestly self-evaluate and identify and address the weeds. What is it that prevents us from bearing fruit in the Lord? bearing more fruit in the Lord? What is it that prevents us from effectively enduring and doing his will? What are the things that discourage us, that dishearten us, that cause us to grow weary? The Hebrew writer would say that we are to set aside every sin and weight which so easily entangles us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you also not grow weary and lose heart. If we focus on Jesus, if we evaluate where we are putting our focus, God gives us all the resources we need to both endure and grow in doing what is good. Not just the external doing, but doing what God intends for us to do for the reason that he intends for us to do those things. If you're here this morning and you recognize your need to obey the gospel, or if there's some 
sin or need for encouragement in your life, we do set aside the end of our assembly here in the invitation song as a period of time where those needs can be brought forward and made known before the church. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.